On today's show, we're going to have Tim Gillingham. He started at age 13 as a diehard archery for over 30 years. He's lived in Wyoming, Alaska, and Utah. He's got multiple species under his belt and multiple championships. He's been dominating the men's NFAA Pro Shooter of the Year for many years. He's got IBO championships and many more. He's also a gold tip and Bowtech Pro Shooter. So sit back, enjoy. We're going to pick Tim's brain about all things archery. This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. So today we are going to be covering all things archery, and if it gets a little uh, technical, I'm sorry, I apologize ahead of time, but I'm super stoked to uh, get into the weeds here a little bit on some of this, and our guest really needs no introduction. Yeah, it, it sounds like you guys have had a chance to visit on the road, and I'm really excited to learn more about archery, because you know that's not my thing as much as it is yours, but Tim Gillingham, welcome to the podcast, it's good to have you. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So as a fellow Wyomingite, Patrick's fourth generation, and I'm I'm a transplant, but I'm not going anywhere. Give us just a quick intro of from starting in Wyoming to where you are today. Well, I left Wyoming in uh, 1989, joined the Army, get out of the, the wind, you know. If you ever watch an arrow fly sideways in Wyoming, you're really hard to launch an archery career from there, so... <laughs> but no, I kind of, I joined the army, uh, I don't know, kind of try something different, get out of Rock Springs where I grew up. I always wanted to go to Alaska. So that kind of got me there. And I lived up there for another five years after I got out of the military. So, you know, got to be able to do a lot of different things, learned how expensive it is really to enjoy Alaska. So, and then I moved down in 97 to Utah. I kind of had visited down here and it's fairly close to where I grew up and they had a really good archery community here. And that was kind of my main goal behind moving is to try to pursue somewhat of an archery career. You know, it had its ups and downs, but it's all kind of culminated into, you know, a successful career in competitive archery, which at one point I honestly didn't even think it existed. I've been working at Gold Tip Arrows for 21 years now. I head up their pro staff and run all the tournament booths and, you know, help with product. I've done a, had a big part of, you know, with the product development of the entire line of gold tip and beastinger products. So, but I mean, I love the technical side of the game. I love bow hunting because it's difficult in, in comparison to rifle hunting. I think you're hunting animals more in their natural element, not running by a hundred miles an hour, scared of the whole crowd, you know? So that was kind of why I wanted to uh, bow. I always had kind of a fascination anyway, I think with Indians and the lore and I still want to shoot a buffalo from the back of a horse someday <laughs> <laughs> that would be a challenge running one down with a horse and being able to stick it but talk a little bit about falling in love with you know shooting a bow in rock springs wyoming see i grew up in cheyenne wyoming so i know all about the wind so tell me kind of what that was like i mean what kind of challenges did you face as a young man trying to shoot shoot a bow in this in this windy state you know, one of the, I guess one of the fortunate things I had is we had a really good archery club in Rock Springs, called, you know, called Firehall Archers, and uh, you know, there's a really good club in Green River also, and so it, you know, it gave me a place to shoot, a place to learn. I've always been a very analytical person, you know, always been able to, you know, be able to look at something and figure out why it's not working, and and 
that's kind of, you know, what led me down, you know, the road of success in archery. I think it's a very self introspective sport and you have to, you have to be able to have that ability to self analyze. And I, I think from playing team sports in high school or, or in junior highs, you know, I kind of really, when I started shooting archery, it was like the biggest, um, you know, building of my self-esteem as a young, young man, because I mean, I, team sports and stuff are more of a popularity contest, you know, when it came from, you know, Farson, Wyoming, which is kind of halfway between Rock Springs and where y'all are at, a little bitty blinking you miss it town. So, and so, I mean, it, it was, I always felt like team sports, you never really got out of it what you put into it as much as archery was just direct and I got out of it what I put into it you know by the time I was 16 17 I was probably beating most of the guys in the club so it just did a did a lot for my own personal self-esteem and growth too as a, as a young man so who was your mentor then, growing up you know I don't know that I had a mentor per se to be honest with you I just I don't know I mean I'd always admired you know Randy Ulmer and some of the stuff that he'd done but uh, you know he just always seemed that quiet mannered you know stone cold guy you know and there's there's a lot behind everybody's story you know and you know what made him successful you know i i mean i look at what chuck adams did with a bow and i think it's he was first you know he was he did it the hard way he still does it the hard way he still shoots fingers for crying out loud but you know anybody that can go to kodiak island and live on that island for 30 freaking days has my <laughs> respect because uh that can be a very miserable place. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because my kids, they do swimming sports and wrestling, which are kind of a blend between individual and team. So when you were bringing that up, I talked to my kids a lot about, you're going to get out of this what you put into it, kind of to your point. And so talk about what you did to develop as a young man and the approach that you took to make yourself better all the time. What kind of hard work and dedication did you have to put in? You know, they, they say it's not work when it's, you know, a passion. And it was, I was very, very passionate about it from right out of the get go. I mean, I, I drove my friends crazy because I'd rather stand there and shoot my bow all day than go play football with the neighborhood kids, you know? So I never really had to be pushed. You know, I tried swimming, but I couldn't see myself getting up at four thirty in the morning and jumping in a cold pool. So, um, you know, you've got to love what you do, you know, and you cannot teach desire to anybody. They either have it or not. You can introduce your kids to a lot of different things, but inherently, you know, there were six kids in our family and we all went different ways, you know, and I never really had to work, you know, to love it. You know, it was just, it was all, it was just like, you know, I've heard the statement coined, you know, only one of two things will happen. You'll get to your goal or you'll quit. One of the two, you know, if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, but, uh, you know, it kind of got to the point where I realized that maybe I wasn't going to make a living shooting, so I was just going to get a job in the industry. Then it was kind of just all that preparation meeting opportunity. I mean, I was 20 years shooting competitive archery before I won my first pro tournament. You know, the kids nowadays, they don't have to learn all these little things that we're teaching them. You know, if you can go on Gold Tips YouTube channel and get my entire 25 years of learning how to tune bows in 10 minutes, you know, and you don't have to learn it. I had to learn it all the hard way. I had to learn how to level sights. I had to learn how to do all the technical stuff. I had to, you know, take what people were saying. And then I've always been a person to prove it to myself, you know, and it, it doesn't always shake out the way the status quo says it should be. So, but that to me is the fun of the journey, you know, and it's, it's, you know, even 40 years in still learning, you know, still picking up things by, by, you know, I think the best decisions and the best products are always made from, you know, several 
top level individuals, you know, all with their input. And, you know, the same thing applies, you know, to competitive archery. If you can get people to share their information, you know, kind of like Brian Lips does over with Applied Ballistics and in the rifle side of the world. I mean, the guys, these are just really smart minds that are all getting together and, and developing, you know, the sport. So to me, that's the fun of it. That's, that really is the fun of it. And then just taking the sport to the next level. I just watched my buddy Kyle Douglas just, I mean, put on a clinic last weekend. And, you know, as a kid I grew up with since he was 16, I think he's now 25 or 26. And, man, he's just one of them that's just wired for it. And, you know, again, he his learning curve, he's now in his prime of his life with all this knowledge where I was kind of past my prime when I got all the knowledge, you know. So, you know, that, that's why you're seeing so many good shooters nowadays and, and of course, the equipment's better, but I don't even think the equipment is that big a deal compared to what it was 20 years ago. It's really not that much difference. I mean, in 97, when I was getting ready for my doll sheep hunt, I mean, I was shooting groups like this at 100 yards. I mean, you know, maybe the slider sight wasn't quite as good as what we have now, but it was still adequate. You know, maybe the it was more of a pain in the butt, you know, to, to mess with the broadheads I was doing or the arrows I was shooting you know, had outsourced on instead of some of the different stuff we have today. But in all in all, I don't think the equipment, it means as much as the knowledge. Rangefinders definitely changed the game. I mean, especially for the bow hunting. I mean, it was just night and day. So, but. so you know, speak to the similarities and the differences of hunting and target archery. Well, most of the people that I shoot stateside with are hunters, okay? And the mentality that it takes to be a good competitive shooter bleeds over into bow hunting. You know, it takes that attention to detail. You know, a lot of there's there's a lot of guys that are good bow hunters or terrible shots, you know. And you know, one of the guys you watch like Levi Morgan on it, you know, now he's fast tracking the, the super slam because well, he doesn't miss. I mean how many guys, you know, Tom Miranda said he missed, what, three three desert sheep before he killed one? Most of us get one shot at that, you know, if we do, you know. So I have learned more for hunting-related shooting skills, getting ready for tournaments than I ever did or ever would have just be, being a hunter, you know. It, it's just there's so much technical expertise in there when, it, it, when, it, when you're a bow hunter. Okay? It's not like a rifle. You can't just go down, somebody sights your gun in, hand it to you, Dial the scope. You know, my buddy's kid shot his first deer at 960 freaking yards for kidding. You know, I mean, that's the stark difference. Bow hunting is still bow hunting, okay? I don't care how good you are. I don't care that I can shoot a paper plate at 140 yards. It's bow hunting. And once you get into that bow range, it is extremely difficult to get the yardage, your sight set, and get a quality shot on that animal. I mean, it just takes a especially spotting and stalking on the ground. I mean, they just have a sixth sense and they know you're there. So, um, so, you know, it just takes different techniques. Uh, it, but again, it just takes passion for what you're doing. I watch some of these guys that are like Marlon Holden that just love mule deer hunting, man. He spends an inordinate amount of time, you know, in the mountains chasing them and you can't argue with his success and you can't argue with his passion. You know, I would never put that much into it. I mean, I couldn't get away with it, number one, but uh, mama would strangle me. But <laughs> but I sure envy them sometimes. So you've hunted a lot of big game in your career. What's your favorite to, 
to hunt spot and stock specifically? You know, of course in my, in my core, I wish I could sheep hunt, you know, doll sheep hunting was just phenomenal when I lived in Alaska. It's, maybe I'm getting too old for it now, but I love high country mule deer hunting. I love, I love what we've been doing over in Nebraska, hunting mule deer in these schoolies and stuff. That's, that's a lot of fun to me without all the physical, it's still physical, but it's not like doll sheep physical or, you know, Colorado at 12.5 is physical. That, that stuff murder you, man. I, I did a mountain goat hunt three years ago and we camped at 11.5 and that was a, that was a eye opener, man. I, you just, you might think you're in good shape, but there's just days I, it's like, I can't, I can't do it, you know, and that's not, not my MO really, you know, usually I'm gung ho. Of course, I'm 50, almost 54. So it's starting to catch up with me a little bit, but uh, I used to get in shape on the way up, but that doesn't work anymore. So I enjoy all kinds of hunting to me. What I love the most is the unknown. You know, I love going on an unknown hunt. You know, it doesn't hurt my feelings that they ban trail cameras because I like going up in a canyon and not knowing what's there and having the surprise of, you know, what I'm going to see that day, you know. Um, and I think trail cameras and, and a lot of this technology has ruined that aspect of hunting. You know, some guys just, you know, they, they just can't handle moderation. You know, they, they run a hundred trail cameras on cellulars and it just, it, it takes the sport out of hunting. I mean, it takes the, you know, the hunt out of it really to a certain degree. Um, you know, I got to, you know, admire their intestinal fortitude to put all the cameras out and get them back. But, uh, you know, I love like our caribou hunt this year. We went on in Alaska up on the Brooks Range. I mean, it's just uncharted territory. You've never been there. You don't know what to expect day to day. And you just go prepared to, and you know, hope you don't have to bear any really bad elements. We had a really super good trip, nothing real vicious weather-wise. And, and just uh, you always remember those. So, no, I've always thought it's a little odd the whitetail hunters that have all the deer named what, what position they're on the hit list, what age. And I, you know, some guys talk to me, Tim, I don't even own a trail camera. I'm I'll probably get murdered by somebody. Some trail camera company's mad at me now, but you know, here in Wyoming in the wilderness, it, they, they don't work. Cell cameras don't work. I'm not hiking hours in to go check it. And the elk move enough that I don't care. I don't need a picture. I'm just going to have fun. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of me too. I've never been a big trophy hunter, you know. I just, I guess that's why I'm the king of the one sixties. But uh, yeah, some some of these hunting outfits, man, they they got it down to the science to where they know this deer's hit this camera, he's going to the next one. We'll get you ahead of them, and it's like, okay, guys. But you know, we. I to be fair, I mean, I I don't whitetail hunt a lot. It's. Uh, People do what they have available to them. Sometimes I wish I could go climb in a tree stand after work, you know, but out here you tend to have to plan and work a little harder at it. Well, top of Utah Archery invited me to go do a whitetail hunt. I went two years in a row there with Lance Post, my back east to Missouri. And, you know, having lived in Alaska like you and having done the doll sheep stuff and having elk and mule deer in my backyard available it was it was intriguing to go do and i will say it's it's terribly exciting when you get a big buck starting to come under your tree it's it's unnerving more so than bugling in a bull elk would be hey, it's tricky i mean i i went down with a kid this year in, in kansas and you know this guy killed like 
he's 16 and killed six, three bucks over 180. But then I kind of figured out real quick that he'd done it over feed and he really didn't have any like, and I'm not an expert. I don't know that. I really don't know that much about whitetail hunting, just logic, right? You know, you got to have, you got to play the wind period. And he didn't have any stand set up. So I, you know, I guess I'm, I was just spent most of my, my hunt just trying to learn how to kill one. And, you know, I guess about another five days, I'd have probably been better off. But uh, trying to sit on the ground with a whitetail is not easy to get a shot. You know, then I tried a tree saddle, and I realized six foot six, two fifty guys don't belong in tree saddles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a fiasco. I probably looked like Sasquatch sitting up in that tree. You know, <laughs> I just imagine you hanging upside down in that tree with your feet kicking in the air. <laughs> it was just like a couple times. It was just like. No wonder people get hurt up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if somebody wanted to get into archery, where would you point them to start? You know, that, that's always a struggle. You know, you really got to find somebody to mentor you to start with. You know, you got to find a pro shop, a club, a Joad program. There's uh, S3DA has done a very good job of of creating teams around the country. Um, you're starting to see a lot of college programs pop up. These colleges are out recruiting at ASA events and. And, uh, you know, I think it'll just take, take some time. It's just slowly growing. Um, Easton has a scholarship series this year. They just started where kids can go out and, and earn scholarship money for high, you know, for college. Um, but you know, just like where I was, you know, growing up, you, you know, we had a good club and those clubs don't exist everywhere. So you just kind of, kind of seek it out, you know, look up your, your state organizations, you know, get out to tournaments and ask questions. I mean, that's the best place. The tournaments, the 3D tournaments, the the indoor dot tournaments, you know, all of it's going to help you become a better shooter, better archer, help you understand kind of what it is, you know, what niche that you like or do what I do and do it all, you know. But, you know, I think it's, I, I love, you know, being well-rounded and being, you know, a, a threat at everything, you know. To, it, sometimes maybe it waters me down a little bit, but whatever. So piggybacking on that a little bit, my kids just started doing archery with their 4-H, you know, group and all of them are really enjoying it. Now where I'm at as a parent is, okay, what kind of equipment should I be getting these kids to start? So ages eight to 13, what would your recommendation be? Just as kind of a affordable, but you know, decent option to, to have something at the house for them. You know, I shoot for Bowtech, and Diamond has a really good line of, you know, very adjustable bows, and you know, across a wide spectrum of draw lengths and poundages. Um, I think that's important to start with. If you know what you're looking for, you know, you can you can find a lot of really good deals online or on used equipment or at pawn shops. I mean, I've seen some dirt cheap stuff. These pawn shop guys have no idea what they have. You know, sometimes they'll have twice the price on something that's worth half as much, you know, and then they'll have the expensive of dirt cheap, you know. That's where, you know, 4-H, like the 4-H is all about the instructor, but, you know, I always encourage parents and kids to, to learn. There's a lot of online information. If you go watch every one of the videos that I've ever put up, you know, you will have learned a lot. That I promise. You know, if you go watch my, my 11 video series on Goldtip's YouTube channel or how to build the Pierce hunting arrow or target arrow and and how to pick a 3D arrow, and you watch all these videos, you're going to have substantial knowledge. You know, I have a 16-year-old girl on my staff I'll put up against most guys in terms of 
you know, being able to work on bows and level sites and crap, she's probably killed more deer than most adult males. I guarantee she has. You know, <laughs> you know she's probably killed 50, 60 animals with a bow at 16 years old, you know. But, you know, it's, you've got to, like I said, you get out into those bigger tournaments and start asking around, and you'll still start to figure out where the activity lies. And maybe, you know, maybe you become that guy, you know. That's why I, I work with, you know, these S3DA coaches. Sometimes it's just a parent, and I help them, you know, pick the arrows for their kids or, you know, give them tuning help or, or what have you. Um, I'm actually – really seriously considering a YouTube channel later this year. I, I just want to do it right when I do it because I want it to be massive and I want it to be kind of that, like what you're saying, that go-to place where you can go to in a very organized fashion have all this stuff in video format because I can sit here and tell you everything I know and you won't retain any of it for very, very little. But if you have a video, you can always go back. You know, I watch Eric Cortina's reloading videos and stuff online for the little rifle shoot I do. So I watch the video. I know it's there. Or I'll save it. I didn't retain half of what they said, but I know the information is there. So if I ever want to go back, I can kind of refresh and, you know, I reload bullets about twice a year. So I, I tend to have to go back and, you know, get a refresher or a call my buddy. Like, Man, I just don't do it enough. You know? mm -hmm. I like the premise, Tim, just, Whenever I have to fix a vehicle, you know, I, I look up the part, look up the vehicle quickly. Oh, I need this tool and this tool. Skip through the video three or four times. I don't sit down for 20 minutes and watch that whole video. I hit the two-minute highlight and go, oh, I need that and that. And then I go start tearing the vehicle apart and trying to put the piece in. And if I get stuck, I go, hey, where's that video again, right? So I think you are you really are onto something as far as overall bow tech tuning. And we could go for probably 24 hours on this podcast trying to get the minutia of each one of these ideas, but I did want to get your take on kind of two things. And one is release aids, trigger or hinge style for hunting. And the other one is kind of building the right hunting arrow, right? There's this premise out there of, Hey, let's build a 700 grain arrow to kill a white tailed deer. And while I was going down that rabbit hole for a Cape Buffalo, building an arrow for a Cape Buffalo and building an arrow for a whitetail are two different things, in my opinion. And so first let's hear about release aids, just, just the difference between caliper and hinge, and then kind of what you think a, a whitetail guy with a standard bow. Well, most, most people, when you get these little, these, you know, set opinions, they're most, mostly all wrong anyway. You know, no, there's no such thing as, you know, guys call me, I just, just got off the phone with a guy, and he, he wanted the perfect 3D arrow. Well, what are most guys shooting? I said, I'm not, that's not how we recommend things, okay? You know, you tell me what your arrow shoots at a specific, arrow weight shoots at a specific speed, and then I'll give you the perfect recommendation. There's no such thing as, it's just a sliding scale of importance, and releases are no different. You know, they, they back tension releases are created because people have anticipation, right? Well, I think they're the ones that got the problem. I would never consider hunting with a back tension, although some people do because they like the control they have over their aim because they've never learned how to shoot a triggered shot without all that anticipation. Okay. I think it's practical, right? Am I more accurate with a single pin sight in a hunting scenario? Absolutely. But is it practical? Oh, 
I've learned over the years. I started with a one pin mover on my doll sheep, screwed that up, went to three pin, been to five pin, six pin, and now I'm at seven pin. Every one of those is because I got burned, you know, or watched somebody else get burned. And so am I a little less accurate with one setup than the other? Very, very slightly, but it gives me options, and that's what we want in the hunting scenario. I shoot a wrist strap because I can hook in behind my neck. I can get that welding into my body and my face, and it kind of relaxes my forearm, and it keeps everything in line. It, it, you kind of got this little trend running around right now, and I call, I blame John, you know, John Dudley, you know, because he's trying to sell his two-finger release to everybody, right? Handhelds are for everybody, but I don't, I don't agree, you know, at all. You know, they're adequate. I've hunted with both. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I kind of like it strapped to my wrist so I don't lose it. But, uh, you know, it's a little different. Like I said, when you're climbing up in a tree and you're packing your crap all over the hill, you know, I got a Alaska binocular pouch I hunt with. And it's got two range finders for a reason. And it's got two releases in there for a reason. Okay, I got a release on my hand and an extra one in my in my strap because I've been at the moment of truth and couldn't find either. So, or had one not work. So I'm pretty good at losing stuff. So, you know, everything's there for a reason. Lanny Basham, I went to see him years ago, and he's the kind of the premier mental coach in archery and shooting sports. I worked with a lot of very high-level people. And he couldn't believe that so many people in archery shot a surprise shot. He said, that's just crazy. I mean, to me, he said, you think we didn't deal with anticipation in rifle shooting? He said, we did. He said, we just didn't give people careers on it. You know, and so it's talked about a lot and we kind of get what we talk about. We get what we expect. We get what we tell ourselves we're going to get. And I kind of look at it in retrospect that I think a lot of it comes from the fact that most of the targets in archery are easy. Okay. They're big bullseyes. You know, you're shooting a, you know, inch, inch and a quarter bullseye at 20 yards. It's huge. The rifle shooters would shoot a pencil eraser at 50 yards. You can't hold on that, so you have to learn to fire on that. And so what you're seeing right now in archery is guys like Kyle Douglas, Jimmy Lutz, Mike Flosser, um, myself. There's a lot of the top-level guys that have learned how to trigger that shot, and they're just supremely accurate. When it comes down to the real accuracy-style events, you know, with this, when you get a guy like Kyle Douglas that's equally good mentally as he is, can, can manage his shot style, like he's – gets almost, you know, unbeatable. You know, the, the, the surprise shot guys will always tell you they can't beat a puncher on it when he's on fire. So, you know, and, and there's no reason not to be on fire. I mean, all your top-level rifle shooters shoot that way. When, when I learned, nobody taught me, so I just shot it like I did a rifle, right? Or when we shot fingers, you know, we just, you just let go. Same difference. Then clickers came into play because guys got target panic, and, you know, it's – it's just a, it's kind of a band-aid, right? The back tension is, but it, to me, it's not practical at all. I watched a buddy stab an elk in the shoulder one year. We waited all day on this big bull and come down the ridge and he held forever on that thing. It just struck. I'm thinking I'd have shot this thing three times already, you know, and finally the shot broke and he stabbed it in the shoulder and that was it. <laughs> you know, but so some things are practical, right? So, I, I, even, you know, from a wrist strap standpoint, I wouldn't shoot the wrist strap that I shoot in tournaments in hunting scenario because it's t it takes too much movement. A lot of times i got to flick the jaw open on it. Well, that wouldn't work in a hunting situation, right? 
I want something that's fluid, easy. You know, I tend to like something that's quiet. So I hunt with a Scott Jaws. So when I pull the trigger, the Jaws open, and I can slow, put it on the on the loop, and it closes. So it, there's no clicking going on. There's no no noise. That's kind of you know from a hunting standpoint. I tend to like a you know a one ounce to two ounce trigger for target. I would take it for hunting, but I don't need it really per se. I can shoot a you know a one pound trigger with no big deal. You know, some of these cheaper releases, you just can't get below that reliably. So I kind of want to shoot a hook style job for hunting. It's just easy to hook and load, but I, I haven't found one yet that I'm in love with. Scott's got a new one out that I really want to try. It, it looks like it has a lot of potential. So, And you've already given me some great advice as far as, you know, I've been hunting a caliper style release and I've been practicing for hunting for longer than I care to admit, to be honest with you, Tim. But, you know, I've done all these things and i've never been you know the target archer guy just never got into it and hearing you validate some of these things i was on an antelope hunt stalking out in the middle of nowhere and looked down and the top half of my release was gone so i just had a fancy wristband right hunts over pretty quick then just this latest 20 day filming in kodiak i looked down in my bino harness and my rangefinder was gone it's pretty hard to judge distance on a white goat on a green carpet in the mist uh, you know, and what's funny about that is I always dummy cord them to me, too. So I always put a piece of shot cord on my rangefinder so that I can shoot and drop it. Or if it comes out, I don't lose it. I guess that's one of the things you learn in the Army, right? They made you dummy cord everything to you with 550 cord. <laughs> so, so you didn't lose it in the dark or stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, a lot of it's just logic, right? It's like, I got a problem. How am I going to solve it? Okay. And there's more than one way to solve those problems, but you know, that's kind of how I attack everything really. So, you know, most, you know, most of these index finger releases, in my opinion, the, uh, the trigger is way too far forward on the, on the body. And that's all to get people longer draw. Like the problem with that is it just crams you up here and then your, your body's out of alignment. You know, you want to get in and in around and in alignment. And so when you do that, especially when I hook my neck, I end up having to, you know, modify my triggers and bring them back a lot further. Eventually, again, like most things, if I want what I want, I'm going to have to build it myself. I talked to a guy last weekend about building a line of releases, actually. So handhelds are good options, too, you know, but when you shoot a handheld for hunting, what type of handheld do you use? You know, I, I like, you know, Carter's Chocolate Addiction because, again, you put it on the loop, close it, it shuts. You don't have a lot of clicking action going. You have to close the sear. I've got a couple of these Trophy Ridge uh, handhelds. And, I man, I like the principle of them. I've shot them really well. They're made in China, and they're just kind of, they pop me in the face a few times, so I'm done there. So it's, those kind of, those kind of uh, releases are, there's so many of them, man. And I look back when I, in, in like early 19, or late 90s, man, I think some of the releases we had back then were even better. You know, the old, the Fletchers, the Fletchers are just phenomenal releases, the, the old Carters, original Carters, I think sometimes are better than even the new ones. On the arrow topic, and, you know, I know we could, you, you mentioned, you know, arrow build is going to be pretty much set up on poundage, draw weights, you know, specific to spine, specific to which animal. But one thing I wanted to highlight is I took my dad to Africa. He took a 55-pound bow with a gold tip hunter arrow and screwed a standard 100 grain broadhead on the front of it right he shot an eland at 27 yards and plum buried it to the fletchings 
you know, as a 440 grain arrow and it was for his bow and his build, it was spined right. It was the right spine. So obviously gold tip has their spine chart and guys should start to follow that. But is there a crossover from target arrows to hunting arrows? You know, is there kind of a happy medium, I guess, so to say? Well, one thing is needs to be understood is that with compound and release, there is really no such thing as two stiff. So that spine should be looked at as kind of a minimum threshold. The only place I make any capitulation to that at all is in micro diameter arrows that you might want to shoot them a little towards the weaker side. But I think that only really applies in target arc when you're running really small veins. Okay. Because a small target is a small, a small arrow is a small target for the power stroke of the string an off center hit because you made a bad shot is a little bit more critical. Okay. It's a little bit more detrimental, but then there's the flip side of that, that the diameter makes it up down range too. So I don't really pay too much attention to spine as long as the arrow is stiffing up. And if you look at my spine, my tuning videos, especially the one called dynamic spine tuning, it will illustrate to you why that is important. The most important thing and where our spine thresholds are set on the upside is to where the arrows react consistent to each other. That is extremely important with broadhead because if you've got, one arrow shooting a left hair, that broadhead's going to the right. If you got one shooting a high tear, that broadhead's going low. That's the only guarantees I can give you. Um, if you're having a hard time tuning each arrow to each other, then your arrows are too weak. Okay, so but when it comes to arrow weight, I blame the ranch, Barry. I, I would never consider talking on a subject I knew nothing, you know, and it drives me crazy. I watch thousands and thousands of people send me pictures for the last 30 years, and on top of what I do, everybody thinks I can do what I do because of my drawing. Well, I've got this 16-year-old girl that went to Africa, shot a zebra with a uh, shooting a Pierce 400 or a Pierce 340, you know, 60 pounds. She shot this zebra at 63 yards, and the guide was just like dumbfounded. It went 20 yards and tipped over with a mechanical broadhead, okay? Not only that, she's shooting a foreign mechanical broadhead, which, you know, I'm not going to tell you is the, the single best penetrating mechanical broadhead of is not. But what its, its attributes are is it's the most accurate. Okay. And to me, that should be what people look at more than any other factor is what is most accurate. Okay. There's all kinds of ego involved in the heavy arrow game. Not necessary. I've never hunted with an arrow over 515 grains ever, except probably back before carbon arrows existed. I remember shooting a moose in Alaska with a 25 or what was that? Probably a 2219 with a bare razor head. Probably the worst penetration I ever got on an animal. Got about 10 inches. Hit right behind the shoulder. Because that arrow is like a big giant slinky, you know? Carbon arrows, I'd much rather shoot that that moose with a 350-grain arrow doing 320 than I would ever have wanted to shoot it with that. And Joel Maxfield does a lot of really good stuff. You really want Your listeners want to look up some really good information. Look up Joel Maxfield's uh, test that he's ran on on. He put a lot of it up on uh, Facebook, but he's basically, you know, showed and proved that kinetic energy is the proper formula. That tells you how much energy is put into the arrow. And the reason heavy arrows don't work as good is because, or don't gain substantially more, is because the bows built nowadays are extremely efficient. If we take a, a recurve, for example, it's not a very efficient bow. It doesn't transfer energy efficiently into the projectile, so therefore a heavier arrow will have a little bit more energy when it comes to penetration. So 
that is not the case with the modern compound bow. And, you know, I've got several women on my staff that are shooting 600 velocities with uh, Magnus Stingers on elk, and they're getting full penetration. You know, Corky Richardson out of Arizona, his, his ex-wife and his daughter-in-law both have crushed a ton of stuff, including grizzly bears, moose, lots of elk. And I'm talking big bull elk, you know, 350, 370 bulls, big suckers, and big bodied animals. And broadhead choice is probably the most important thing in terms of penetration. Shot placement and arrow flight are huge. Um, But arrow weight, I got a guy, I'm trying to get on uh, Aaron Snyder's podcast called, his name's Jim Bath. Jim Bath killed more giant whitetails than anybody I know of. And he's from Manhattan, Kansas. He's an older guy now. and we shot NFA tournaments with him for years. But you know what his arrow he hunts with is? 260 grains. 30 years ago, he was shooting 340 foot a second. Again, he's solving a problem. In his mind, the problem was I'm dealing with an animal that's fast, jumpy. It's going to jump the string, and this is my solution to it. You know, he shot three LO4s back in the day, you know, with a rocket 55-grain broadhead machined down to glue right in the end of the shaft. So now he's just basically using the same broadhead glued in the front of a, a VAP TKO. So he's got a very lightweight arrow, and I, I ran into a buddy of his at a tournament this year, and he's basically got a 280-grain arrow doing 320, doing the same thing. And they're just blowing right through him like hot-melted butter, but yet you got the ranchberry on the other side saying I'm unethical for if I don't hunt with a 650-grain arrow for white tip. Well, let me tell you the number one problems I have as a bow hunter. Number one is the distance from here to there. So what are my solutions? A rangefinder is first. The secondary is speed because you don't always have time. You range the animal, he moves. He's coming down this trail. Yeah, I ranged it there. Oh, he just missed it. So on and so forth. You know, you know, I shot my elk last year. Same thing. He come out of the field. Boom. I got a range. Everything happens fast. You know, you don't have, you know, time to be within one yard on it. So the solution to those problems are speed for me. So I try to shoot fast. I mean, I missed a giant deal there in Nebraska this year because. I made the dumb decision to try to guess the art. I missed. But I think you've just validated the that from the target world, the guys that are on fire that punch. You know, you get out in a situation with an elk, a white-tail mule deer, where he gives you that look back, or he's stopped in that shooting lane, or he's coming through. If you can't execute that shot quickly and efficiently. I don't care how, how tight your group is at 150 yards if you can't get it done at 33 yards right now. But I'll tell you right now, there ain't a back tension shooter alive that can shoot groups with me at 100 or Kyle Douglas at 150 yards. They can't hold that good. Okay, they, ain't, they, they, they can't do it. So, but, but like you said, yeah, it's a solution to a problem. But, you know, you, you always say punch. Everybody says punch. It's not a punch, really. It's a sight picture firing the shot. I have a light trigger. I'm sitting on the trigger, and when I, my mind has that sight picture that says, go, it's gone. It's still a subconscious, you know, activity. So, but, but on the arrow things, you know, it, like again, most things are just because somebody's, you know, most things are presented because somebody's trying to sell you something. So what I'm thinking, what I think I hear you saying is probably the best solution is to maximize your kinetic energy with your setup. Right. You can never even cross my mind. Yeah. I've shot completely 380 grain arrows. I shot my Eland with about the same setup as your dad. I was shooting 295 foot a second with a 440 grain arrow with a two blade rage. 
but maximize kinetic energy at speed. So go the fastest you can with the most kinetic energy where those two cross is kind of the happy medium and don't worry about it from there. hundred percent of my setups are based around a desired speed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I have what I, when I personally look for arrow weight and I want to add weight into the equation, it's simply for wind performance and nothing else. So what would be an FOC that you're targeting for that wind performance? measure foc i just look at point weight you know i'm looking at what 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 would i shoot for tournament archery you know for me personally anything over 140 150 grains total up front is a waste it creates too much resistance on the front of the arrow it's going to cause the arrow to flex a lot more and flop around a lot it's going to bring out all the dynamic inconsistencies in the arrow and it's really not going to give you any more wind performance right diameter is number one for wind you know point weight's number two so and I'm trying to also create a hunting arrow that's quiet. So I run small mechanical broadheads that have to run small fletching that are quiet because the animals jump the sound of the arrow coming out. And that's one you know, thing nobody I, talks about is if you were to take like a trailer or a Connex box or a shed, put a target at 120 yards and have the shooter go 60 yards behind the shed and fire an arrow, you hear that arrow coming for two seconds. It sounds like a bee or a bird buzzing through the air. And the quieter you can make that arrow, the, the less intrusive that is. You know, and, I, and again, back to the previous conversation about being around people all the time that are that are experts in the field, you learn things. You know, Steve Cobreen is another guy I was trying to get on Aaron's podcast because he's he's an expert. This guy has killed a hundred and he, he has killed more species SCI world records with a bow than anybody I that in history. I think he's killed sixty species with a bow. No other guy has. He's kind of that quintessential British explorer mentality. But he and I are kind of the same height size we always talked a lot he shot for me but he, he told me of a test he ran on Apollo one time where he actually shot trying to figure out what are they jumping right are they jumping the sound of the bow or are they jumping the sound of the arrow so he shot a target behind the blind and filmed the animal then he shot a target shot it at the animal he said it's like it's not even close because I had questioned him on why he was ordering this what I considered at the time a small vein and that's that's what he had told me so you know I kind of always like that makes a lot of sense you know so I, I, you know, I remember shooting like in my yard once and my dog was down by the target and seen him jump. And I'm like, you know, then I got chastised online because I was shooting over my dog. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but you know, lots of these things are, are that way. So you shoot a small diameter, you shoot a middle diameter, you shoot a, 166, 204, 246. Heck, I've shot X cutters for hunting, which is a basically a 24, 25 diameter shaft. Um, the reason is because at my draw length, they're the lightest, fastest thing that I could shoot. And got a lot of animals out here with them. One of the longest shots I ever made on an antelope I shot with an X cutter, believe it or not. And but realistically, if most guys are shooting in your max yardage is say 70 or 80 yards most people are better off with a 246 style arrow id they're easier to tune they have internal component systems you're stronger there's a lot of variety available in weight you can add weight to the inserts if you want um, as you go down in diameter they're also way more durable because they're made with medium modulus graphite as you go lighter and skinnier, that has to be made with high modulus graphite. That becomes a much more brittle arrow. So 
if you're from the fishing world, you pretty much understand that with fly rods and stuff. But prepreg rolled uh, carbon fiber rods are way stronger than other models. You know, there's some companies out here that build a inline cured carbon arrow, and it might be cheap, and it might be made in the U.S., but it's extremely brittle. It holds a memory when you bend it, so you can eventually shoot the shoot the accuracy and spine out of it. And it just doesn't take as many people to build the product, right? But it doesn't build as good a product as, say, a pre-tread rolled carbon arrow. Um, when we get into, like, the airstrike arrows that Goldstick makes, that's a that's pre-tread rolled, but it's high mods of scrapite. So it's going to be a little bit more brittle. Okay, if I take a Chaos, I could, you've seen our Brent tester at the trade show, right? I, I took a chaos. chaos and stuck it in a Cape Buffalo at 20 yards, and the broadhead wadded up, and the arrow held up just fine, right? And that was a 77-pound bow. I mean, I was, they're crazy. They're crazy tough arrow. If you want a tough arrow, just buy a chaos and go hunting. That's that's the end of the yeah, argument. For a pro hunter, yeah, really hard to beat. I mean, I, I got another shooter over in Australia, Owen Stronald. He was on the front page of our catalog a couple years ago, and this guy has killed... I don't even know what the number's up to. It's got to be close to 400 water buffalo with a bow. Okay. If anybody should be talking on penetration and bow hunting scenario, it should be a guy like that, right? You know, he shot most of his Cape Buffalo with, or his, his water buffalo. Chaos. Pretty dang close. A lot of them with a Chaos 200. Anywhere from a 485 grain 250 spine uh, pierce to a, uh, you know, a 500 to 520 grain Chaos. I think broadhead selection is way more important in that scenario. It's a two-blade cut-on-contact broadhead. Exactly. So, and I'm just curious, standing on the line, shooting for money, what what do you do to prep to get ready to do that? I mean, that's that's a world that I haven't entered. Or, or I mean, what is, what is different in that arena than hunting? The hardest thing to handle, and it has a direct correlation to hunting, is the nerve. You know, I mean, learning how to, some people just struggle a lot with it. Some people don't at all, you know, and it's kind of crazy. Some, I, I attribute to type A and type B personalities a lot. Um, you just got, in order to, to, to get more comfortable in that scenario, you just got to normalize it, right? You know, Jim Burmer shot a hundred freaking elk with it, but he probably doesn't get jangled anymore. I still get jangled when they jump, they jam in, you know? You know, same same thing goes. You know, I, I remember getting though getting having an elk in Montana to charge in. Just it wasn't even a big elk, raghorn five or six. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember just shaking. And the only thing I could think was, do what you do in a in a tournament scenario. Just make sure you're pulling because it'll always hit behind. You know where the pin was. And if you're not pulling, if you're collapsing because you're nervous and your body wants to collapse, then you know no telling where that arrow's going to go. So. But you, you pick up on little things like that in tournament archery that prepare you for, you know, what you see in the woods. I had a mule deer about two years ago, same thing. It was a pretty long shot. And I'm like, it wasn't even a big buck, you know? And it was like, I just felt myself trembling. I'm like, okay, make sure you pull. So, but nerves are, yeah. In the hunting situation, the one thing I, the first thing I tell people to do is slow down. You absolutely got to slow down. Okay. Because your mind has got an adrenaline attack, your body has, and your mind says, I want rid of this feeling. So the first thing you got to do is slow down. Second thing you got to do is, is uh, you know, visualize what you want to see happen. 
lot of guys, you hear stories, guys just shooting and they don't know what happened. They missed. They just threw all the pins down on it and pulled the trigger and they just did a complete panic attack, right? And so if you'll take the time to think, I'm putting that pin right there, just that little split second, you know, will kind of imprint that picture. When I'm shooting a, an ASA term, I look at my binoculars, I fuzz up the binocular about what I see it's going to see in my sight picture, and then I kind of take a visual picture of what I'm going to see when I look through my, my target scope. So kind of the same principle. And then you just have to learn not to, you know, not to fear the trembling or the, 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 the dreadful okay, if you do get that far. Um, you have to learn that you can shoot with it. And the more you fear it, the more you're going to get. There's a book I read called uh, Panic Away. And it was, uh, it, it's basically how people do, they teach you to correct panic attacks. And it's basically that same thing. It's just visualization. Put, you, put yourself in control. For the kids who are going to listen, because I, I know my kids will, and they've, like I said, they've become really interested in archery. And for the new folks who are taking on archery that are listening to this, to this show, what are some of the top things that you suggest that they do mechanically or, you know, as you're any, any bow shooter, right? When they go up to make a shot, what is it that they should be doing physiologically, mechanically for every shot? Well, Again, I would encourage learning, right? So get some books, you know. There's really good books on, you know, one good one I'll tell you is uh, David Tubbs called High Powered Rifle. He does a very good job of teaching you how to segment position. He covers some different things in there that you can correlate. In the back of the book, he talks a lot about his it. mental, mental process, how you segment. You know, when I walk to the line, I'm visualizing. First, first thing I'm doing is, is setting up my feet, finding my target. Maybe the next step is I'm setting my grip, setting my anchor point, my alignment, and then the third step is I'm focusing on the target and then focusing on the follow through. If I follow through mentally, the, the physical will follow. But one thing he does say in the book is you never let those three intertwine. Okay. Never go back to one when you're in three. And one of the biggest struggles that, that myself, including people have, like an indoor where you can't miss or anything, is that you're, and this is a type A problem more than a type B problem, is your mind wandering. You know, your mind not staying focused on the task at hand. And that is extremely uh, critical. I, I asked an old, an old hand in archery years ago, Ed Elias, and I said, Ed, if you told me to practice one thing, what would you tell me? And he told me something that was kind of very unique and that I never would have expected. He said, I would practice focused concentration. Focus on doing what you're doing and only what you're doing. Okay. You're driving down the road. Try focusing on just driving. It's hard. We're distracted. We've got lots of things going on. We're trying to use our cell phone and yell at the guy next to us. But focus on it, just doing what you're doing and staying in that lane. Um, there's a lot of good books on mental training in, from the golf world. Um, if you look at golfers, golfers have the same type of thing. You know, they have swing keys, right? So in archery, you want to have your main things that you think about. I'm going to get my feet set. I'm going to get my alignment. I'm going to get my grip. I'm going to get my anchor point. All these different, you know, aspects. But you can't be thinking about it all at once or you're going to be just, you know, you got too much going on. So 
my final focus on my shot is is I focus on holding the arrow on the part or the pin on the target till I hear the arrow hit. And if you'll stay there, your mind will never be where it shouldn't. Be. You just got to learn how to fix what's broke, right? You know, people, what do I, what should I do to become better? Well, what do you suck at? You know, not practice what you're good at, and practice what you suck at. You know. No, I I know for me, I've been shooting arrows a long time, and I'm still chasing that perfect arrow flight. You know, I get better arrow all flight. the time, but arrow. Arrow flight is one of the things that, that that should be learned in the first week, okay? Because it's tuning, right? Paper tells no lies. If your arrow's going through paper, your arrow flight's perfect, okay? Stop worrying about it. No, I guess, Tim, at some point in time, I'm I'm ready to hang up archery when I release the perfect arrow, and I just haven't done it yet, right? That's why I go practice every day. There's something meditative about shooting my bow that... I don't get from bowling and I don't get from snowboarding and I don't get from horseback riding and I don't get from rifle shooting. There's something intrinsic in archery about, you know. Yeah, they always said there's a, a certain romance in the flight of the arrow, you know, from a perfectly, you know, what Ted Nugent says, the mystical flight of the arrow. <laughs> the mystical flight, yes, Uncle Ted. Yeah. And his are moving really slow, so he's got a lot of time to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Picking on Uncle Ted. Mm. So yeah, it is There's a lot of gratification in in that perfect shot. You know, I don't. It's hard for me to get that indoors and in indoor competition because it's just a it's a par game that they issue you. You know, thirty X's and you spend your whole time trying not to give it back. You know, when you get good at it, you know, when, while you're getting good at it, it's kind of fun because it's like, okay, I, I can still get better and getting better and getting better. But, you know, very quickly, you know, once you get to a competitive level, then it's just don't screw up game. And to me, that's not as much fun as uh, games where, like, we shoot 90 meters and you can stand there for years and never clean that. So what do you think about moving the uh, yardage back in indoor archery? I think it. I think it's necessary. The problem you're going to run up against is that all the ranges are built 20 yards, and there's just not room. That's always going to be a problem. But I, I, I think it would be the, the number one thing you could do because the equipment's just gotten so accurate. People have gotten so accurate. I mean, Chris, Chris Schaap just broke the national record this weekend. He missed one baby X in three in four rounds. That's just nuts. I can't do that if I was chromatose. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy good. And then to do it when it mattered, under under that pressure with that adrenaline with that camera, you know, that's that's a lot. Yeah, once the guys get to his level or Kyle's, I don't know that they feel that pressure as much. I mean, they know they're the top of the food chain, and it's like, come get me, you know. Everybody else chasing. Yeah, speaking of the food chain, this is one of the things we talk about on the podcast all the time, and I'm always intrigued by the variety of answers that we get. So, if you were to go out in the field and Procure some big game animal. What's your favorite one to eat? I don't know. I'd probably say squirrel, but uh, <laughs> I haven't eaten it in so many years. But I remember growing up, just my granddad had squirrel dogs, and we just I love squirrel hunting. And squirrel, you know, was always a lot better. I thought than rabbit. And, <laughs> and, I mean, I like doll sheep. You know, doll sheep's good. It's all good. You know, I mean, it depends. You know, Andrew cooked us up a bunch of caribou. You know, in camp this year, and that stuff. Just to die for, you know. Most of it, the cooking is based on the cook. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've never professed to be a cook. You know, I'm I'm no good at it. I never tr- made an effort really. So, 
So the future of hunting is important to both Patrick and I. We're trying to pass it down to our kids. From your perspective, what is what is the outlook of our industry? I mean, well, I've always, you know, my take on this is this: you have two aspects. You have a political aspect, and you have a physical aspect of it, right? How do we get more kids into archery? Okay, into archery and hunting, and it can be a multifaceted because you can put all the kids you want in archery but if you don't create any any pot of gold at the end of the rainbow to incentivize that what good is it? you're gonna lose it a lot right and same thing goes with hunting if you don't have if there's not the opportunity out there you don't necessarily want everybody hunting but you want hunting to have support so i think the very best way to do that is to really build up the shooting sports in general because when it comes time for people that don't necessarily participate, if they know somebody that's a hunter or a fisherman, they have respect for this person, they're much more likely to vote in favor than against. Okay. And I think that in itself is probably the key, you know, aspect of having, you know, hunting a hundred years from now is the fact that you need public sentiment for it, you know, same thing with archery. If I was thinking about how am I going to build up archery, I got to play the political game. I got to get, you know, the media on board. I got to, I can't have them shaming and I got to have them on board. I mean, I got to have it become status quo. I got to have it be cool, you know, and we're kind of soft nowadays. So the best way around that, I think, is to get people involved in, in hunting or I mean, in shooting, really, whether it's bow or gun or whatever. You know, get them to meet people, get them introduced and to, uh, you know, people outside of their norm, you know, and they're much more likely, like I said, when it comes time to vote yay or nay or defend it one way or the other, that they're going to, they're going to vote for it than, than against it. Yeah. I think you make a good point. The, the sphere of influence that you have, it's important to use it in a positive way to show that the sport is a good thing and not a bad thing. I, I know that. Oftentimes our story gets told for us by Hollywood and by the media. And usually it's not a real good picture, right? They try to have something that's clickbait a lot of times where if you sit down, you have dinner or drink with somebody and you say, Hey, this is why I do this. This is why I love this so much. This is why I care about it. That's going to mean a lot to that person. And they're going to see, you know, your heart and soul behind it and have a greater appreciation for it. Yeah, that's why we really got to be careful in, in, in showcasing hunting with all the egos involved in there, you know, because that is probably the biggest turnoff. I mean, it's the biggest turnoff I have is even in the hunters when guys, they, I don't know, they call hunting a sport. And I don't know if it would be as much of a sport as it is a lifestyle. But so, if you treat it as a sport, and I mean, then, then the question always is, well, do you eat it? You know, mm-hmm. you just shoot it or do you? Yeah, we eat it. I mean, I grew up eating nothing but wild game. My parents never bought me ever. I don't ever remember my parents buying me. I mean, I remember eating, shooting three antelope, two deer, and three elk, and by spring, it's, you know, by hunting season, it's time to get some more meat in the freezer. You know? So, <laughs> I grew up hunting, you know, as we, we hunted and we ate what we, you know, shot, but it's not just that. You know, it's the, it's the, the oneness with nature. It's the, I don't know. It's there's there. You shouldn't be guilty about 
you know, loving the pursuit, you know. You know, the pursuit of wild game is, is exciting, you know. It's, the, the hardest one, you know, trophies or, or animals are the ones that mean the most, not necessarily the one with the biggest horns, you know. I got an elk on my wall up here, the first one ever shot with a bow. I worked my guts out for it. It's not as big as the one I shot two years ago, but I, I guarantee it means more. Same thing with my doll sheep. You know, it's one of them things you just had to dig down deep for. And and those are the ones that really, like, I think it's those experiences. It's like people, some of my wife's friends will come in and see the animals up in our great room and they turn their nose. And But I can look up at every one of them and remember every one of those experiences. And to me, that is what hunting is about. That's the way it needs to be, you know, portrayed. You know, not just, you know, the big you know, ego play that it is a lot. You know, it's a big money game now and you know, it's like whatever. Everybody's gonna do it for their own reason, but I, I think we need to make sure that we portray it as, you know, you know, in a noble, you know, pursuit. So how do we teach that also to our kids and to these adult onset hunters and anglers to have that perspective? I mean, what kind of conversations do you have when you're coaching someone along? I I, I don't know if there's any other way than just you know, getting them in a tree stand and, and letting them see nature in its finest or, you know, putting a rut and bull elk in their lap or, you know, I, I just think that's what's missing, you know, that, you know, we were 15, 16, I mean, we were out running around the hills and doing it ourselves, you know, that's all we ever wanted to do, but we didn't have the influence of social media and phones and 24 seven and, you know, I look at my two nephews. If everybody wants to change this game, you pick one or two people or three and you affect their life in a positive way and we've tripled our numbers. So that's the only way it's going to happen. I mean, I got two nephews. My brother died when they were pretty young. And one of my goals is I've got them both those. And eventually when they're out of college, I want to I want to get them on. And at least let them try it. And that's going to be on me to kind of flip the bill in the beginning and get them going. It's harder nowadays, though, because it's it's hard to take the family hunting, especially out west of Utah with how difficult it is to get a tag. Um, but there's other opportunities. You know, we can go hog hunting, and everybody likes some good pork sausage, you know. And so it's a way that you can take them, you know, hunting and have that experience of hunting and, you know, take something home that they may want to eat. I think you've touched on the best part is it's hunting. It's seeking for what you don't know where it is. Right. And the disconnect we have in nature, I think the best part is feeling the dirt under your feet. That's, I I would never have thought, you know, growing up like I did wild and out and building forts and, you know, throwing mud balls and doing whatever I did. I was always connected with nature, always doing something. And kids nowadays are in a, plastic box and never even get dirt under their feet, just live on concrete. How do you explain to somebody what hiking up in the dark in subalpine terrain and the smells and the, just the cool air, you just, you just, and the, the you know, cracking of daylight, you know, and, and the anticipation of what you're going to see. If you just can't explain that without taking somebody, they're not going to relate to it. A person in New York city will never relate to that. Ever. And there's some people that have done a good job. I think, you know, I like the way Jim Shockey portrays with his show. I like, you know, even Stephen Ranella, some of the stuff that he does, you know, and 
the way he showcases it makes it fun and exciting. And it's not always about killing the biggest animal. And and but to me, that is the that was the love of the game. But uh, too often, it's just the biggest trophies and stuff that get represented as the creme de la creme of hunting, rather than just the the, the, the experience. Man, I mean, it was. It made me a stronger man. It, you know, some of it, you know, as a man especially, it it pits me against something that's difficult and helps me learn to overcome that. You know, and I, you know, when you're hiking in and it's two and a half hours before daylight and 3,000 vertical feet and two feet of snow, I mean, it makes you uh, dig down deep. But when you accomplish it, when you look up at the, the mountains we hunt here in Utah and you think, what's the chance of me killing a deer today? They're nil to nothing. You actually pull it off. It's just a pretty gratifying feeling, you know, pretty gratifying. And that, I think you've, you've summed it up as how many different high alpine deer basins have you hiked into and watched the sunset and hiked out empty handed. Right. And nobody shares a picture on social media of that, but that is, I mean, I take this latest Kodiak film. I tell people, Going on the hunt is like sitting down to a three-course meal. Watching what we captured, we captured 20 hours of footage in 20 days, Tim. The, the, the camera was on for one hour every 24. Watching the film is going to be like pulling the cherry off the, the top of the milkshake and eating it and going, hmm, that must have been a nice meal, right? If you watch all the footage, that's like having the milkshake. But going on the hunt is like having the three-course meal. It just, I can't, I don't know how else to describe it, right? Because there's times that things happened on that hunt that isn't on film and nobody will get to see, and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, my dad and my you brother know, and I. That's the thing, is it's all in your, it's in your, it's in your brain, you know? You, I remember it all. I mean, I, I went on a moose hunt with Sean Andrews and Hamsky a couple years ago. We, Sean killed one, none of us did, but I got to see wolves a couple times, I mean, there ain't nothing like throwing a spoon up into a, a little, you know, I don't know what you call it, but we were catching pike like they were going out of style. <laughs> I mean, I had more fun pike fishing than I did about anything, but, uh, you know, just, just all the things, you know, having to build a shelter from nothing and, you know, dealing with the weather and, and I don't know, just so many things, you know, you know, understanding that you're living here in, in in fragility you know you're 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 in a little tiny freaking boat in the middle of nowhere if something goes wrong you're gonna have to suck it up or you're done buddy and you know it's it's just i read a book one time about pilots in alaska or it was just i can't remember it's what the title of the book was but it was something about dodging death a bunch <laughs> Dude, some of the stories these guys had, it's like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, you know, sinking a, or flipping a boat full of moose meat on Lake Iliamna with grizzly bears and stuff around, it's like, it's just crazy, and I've done some stuff in my years that I've have dodged a few bullets, it makes me think the good Lord's got a different plan for me, because, I mean, it could have ended up mighty differently, so, but you learn from those experiences, and, you know, you pass that advice down to the next generation. Yeah, my boy, he, well, all my kids just got done with Hatchet, which is one of those outdoors books that most kids read. And it's about a kid who crashes an airplane and has to survive. And um, 
you know, they've been talking about, oh, well, it'd be really cool, Dad, if we go out this summer, you know, make our own shelter and maybe we can figure out how to make our own bow and arrow out there in the woods and all this stuff. And they're all excited about that. And I think that's great. And that's something that we need to cultivate in the kids is get them off of those iPads and get them up into the mountains and do some fun stuff yeah. like that. It's not going to hurt them to, you know, go up to a trout stream and learn how to cut a willow and tie some line on it and a little hook and see if they can catch a brook trout. You know, I mean, that's that's some cool stuff. And, you know, I, I just listening to you talk about that, that's, that's the kind of stuff we have to remember to show our kids and inspire them to do is get out there and have fun and enjoy it. Yeah. And they just need to, you know, I, I, I kind of wish I had the opportunity to do more hunting and filming and things like that and bring that, that aspect to people. I mean, it's just interesting the people you meet hunting, like the pilot we had this year in Alaska. I mean, this kid, he was 16. He flew to Fairbanks for his driving test. You know, wow. he knew not a fly airplane. And most people can't even relate with that. You know, the fact that these kids have run trap lines from the time they were just little and, but just exceptional people, you know, that you meet in the outdoor world, you know, and it's, I think one of the things that, you know, is kind of a commonality with people that are in the outdoor pursuit, you know, is they're just, they are, they're good people. They're just down to earth and they're the kind of people that if crap hit the fan, you'd want at your back. So we're slowly getting weeded out though, I think, you know, on purpose, but I guess we just need to train them too. huh? Yeah. I think it goes back to that sphere of influence, right. And trying to instill those values and teach others around us because I mean, all the industries in the outdoors are really kind of under attack from different directions. You talked about the political side, but I mean, it's just a lot of it, to your point, is ignorance. You know, people look at the fishing industry and they're like, gosh, can't believe you do that or I don't understand that. Just same with hunting. You know, I don't understand it. I think a lot of it is just people don't understand because they've never had the experience and they've never been exposed. All right. You know, I don't know how many people I've run up against in an airplane that, you know, you conversation comes up that you know you shoot archery professional like real and but you could just tell they have a stereotype in their brain and that's why i talk about you know if you introduce more people to people in the sport by sport you know they start you start to break that stereotype down you know i met a guy that had never had a car in 12 years in new york city i can't relate with you either you know right. i can't even fathom that i mean it doesn't even like you know, and, and our our town, or Salt Lake, slowly turned it into that. You know, they're building these little apartment complexes everywhere, and these people just, they don't leave that little centralized area. And I don't understand that or the desire of for it myself, but, uh, you know, to each his own. But, but the, the key is, is we want the vote of that person, not necessarily 100% participation. There's only so many resources to go around. So, but yeah, we have to be cautious on how we, you know, look you know, market ourselves and, and marketing is the key, you know. I would agree. And then, you know, to those people living in New York or Salt Lake in their little bubbles, I, it's a house of cards stacked up. You know, I, we have three chest freezers full of Alaskan salmon and I don't think there's any dull sheep left in there, but there's definitely a lot of antelope and elk, right? And there's only three days of food in the grocery store, Tim. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's funny cause I don't think I think most, a lot of these people there, their perception of hunters are is you just, you go kill it for sport. And it's not, it's not, they can't even fathom going and like literally like eating off of that freeze. You know, my, my mother's 
I think she's just, I mean, I went in her house the other day. I'm like, man, you could live for eight years in this room here, Mom. <laughs> still has her kids and stuff. So, I mean, we had six kids, so she just, she's on her own now, but she still can't get out of that cycle. It's canning and, and you know, putting up meat and stuff. And, we do have it easier now, though. You talked a little bit about hiking up a drainage, you know, waist deep in snow. Just the technical clothing, the equipment, you know, you look at those guys that were, you know, exploring rural Alaska in the first bush plains. I mean, they were wool, leather boots, wool clothes with wooden packboards yeah. and cast iron tools and skillets. They were cut out of a different cloth than me. I'll tell you that right now. They're definitely tougher than we were. I mean, you look at even like World War Two and World War One, the way those guys had to fight those conditions in Korea and stuff. It's like, yeah, wool was pretty warm, but I'm telling you right now, those people weren't warm. <laughs> they were just tough. I wasn't warm on Kodiak the whole 20 days, Tim. <laughs> it rained 18 to 20. I was wet all day, every day, in technical good clothing. Key to Kodiak is you got to be able to have a fire to get dry every night, and then it becomes doable, or it's a suck fest. <laughs> or, or you just get lucky and get 10 days of sunshine, and I've been twice now, and I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, right. Yeah, we hunted in November a few years back, and it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, we couldn't, couldn't ask for better, but we had a Kafaru teepee with a stove with driftwood, cedar driftwood. Oh. And it was so nice. You're sitting there in the night, and that was half the fun of the whole trip, you know, just all the conversations and stuff around the fence, you know, the fire. Yeah, those little stoves are nice, and they put out the heat. And <laughs> having that cedar think- is pretty nice, too. Burning cedar is awesome. Well, putting that stove up and that Kafaru teepee in your backyard and saying, hey, I'm going to sleep out there tonight versus a house, eh, it doesn't look so appealing but when you look across the vastness that is wherever this remote wilderness is you're in and there's nothing else that looks like a, a three-story castle i don't need to practice sucking <laughs> <laughs> deal with that when the time comes yeah well tim this has been really good for me and informative and it's cool to actually meet you i've heard a lot about you you know over the past few years and you know again i'm i'm definitely a novice when it comes to archery but if someone wanted to go and learn more where's some places that they can go to pick up more information learn more about what you're doing and uh get that critical knowledge well um Again, at first, I would, you know, just visit some of the, you know, you can Google my name and get all kinds of tuning information. Your your, your main organizations for archery are, are ASA Archery, uh, NFAA Archery, and USA Archery. And between those three, you're going to find something that's going to fit. Um, if, if, your kit, if your schools want to get involved with uh, NASP, you know, that's another big thing that's introduced a lot of kids into archery and, you know, you can thank Matthews for that. Uh, uh, but then the, kind of the offshoot of that is S3DA archery. S3DA archery is designed to get a kid into his first equipment that actually fits him and get him hunting and get him shooting, you know, competitive 3D. And they, they've been very, very successful in that. So and they can kind of give you, if you're, want, you're a parent and you're wanting to get, you know, that involved in your kid's community or your kid's school or something, you know, they have those programs already set up they have gear packages set up that you can actually purchase. Um, maybe you can get a grant for them or, or what have you. So, um, but in, in your local pro shops, 
depends on the pro shop, you know, as to how much knowledge and expertise they have. Uh, you know, there are some very, very good ones, you know, throughout the country. So, you know, that's that's kind of the starting point. You know, like you said, your 4-H programs have archery, the YHAP programs and stuff, and different other shooting sports. And, you know, it's not just archery. It's, it's all shooting sports. You know, my buddy Kevin Murphy coined the term shooter shoot, you know, and, and I, I like, you know, I like shooting competition with a rifle as much as I do with a bow. Different. You learn, you're always learning stuff, you know. But I kind of tend to like to be a jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of that statement is a jack of all trades, master of none is still better than a master of one. You're well-rounded, Tim. So, again, thanks for coming on. We'll put some links into some of the info that you've put out there. You know, at least at least diamond for the kids' bows and, you know, gold tip arrows. Kinetic Chaos is a, my vote if you want one that's not going to break, for sure. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course... Please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.